Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. The first job I ever had was working at a grocery store. Uh, I've told you guys this part of the story before, but... You know, I I had the very fashionable job of taking the groceries that people had just purchased and asking, paper or plastic? (laughs) And uh, this was back in the day when we were actually allowed to give out bags for free. And once the customer decided, I would load up their groceries in the bags of their choice uh, and then into their shopping cart. And then I would ask them if they wanted help out to their car. And if they said yes, then I would, I'd go outside with them while making small talk. Uh, we'd go to the back of their car, I'd load the groceries into their car, and then I'd wave at them and tell them to have a, a nice rest of their day. Uh, not a super luxurious job, but it was certainly a job, and I certainly needed a job as a newly married man. Well, while I was there, Uh, We ended up getting a new manager, and he was known for being very efficient. Uh, He was the kind of manager who maximized profits. And so, of course, corporate loves somebody like this, somebody who can come in and make the most money uh, in a business. That's ideal. But there's always concern, as I'm sure you know, when you're waiting to find out who your new boss is going to be. But I think we generally assume that things will still work out pretty well. For me, they didn't. We never got along. Uh, he hated that I, that I couldn't offer myself for a full 40 hours a week. Uh, he hated that I was always asking for Sundays off because I was usually preaching places. Uh, there was actually a time that he sat me down and told me that it would be best for my future if I would really focus on my job. And, and of course, that meant that I should drop out of seminary and forget about church. And uh, that actually happened. He told me that there are more important things in life, like taking care of your family. And this caused a, a pretty big division between the two of us. And it caused me to end up hating my job. Uh, I ended up working Sundays because I really didn't have a choice but he would, he would at least schedule me late on Sundays uh, so that I could come in in the evening, which meant that I could go to church in the morning, usually. Uh, but then I was getting off at midnight, only having to leave for Fresno at 6 a.m. on Monday morning for seminary. So the short story of all of this is that I was desperate for a change in scenery. But what other job could I get? Right? I mean, all entry-level jobs are going to require that you work on Sunday. I realized that this was a reality. And I hadn't developed any real skills that I could market. Then I saw an ad for a new store in town that was closed on Sundays and looking to hire. You see where I'm going with this. There was one requirement. Retail experience. That I had. I had retail experience and and i ended up getting that job uh, which was a huge blessing but but here's the thing when we look at life as a whole 
You know, the bottom line is that we really have no idea how our lives are going to go. I think most of us have probably figured that out by now. We have no idea. Uh, we don't know the future. And we really don't know what it is that God is planning for us. There are so many vari variables. There's not much that we can do besides just continue to be faithful to God. But if you've been following God for any amount of time, then I'd be willing to bet that you can look back at your life and pinpoint at least one moment that you were miserable. But now you can see that God used that moment for your good and for His glory, even in the middle of your misery. You know, the grocery store, it gave me minimum wage and experience in retail. All I needed for my next job was experience in retail, and it gave me the schedule that, that I had been praying for. God used that moment for my good and His glory. And that's just one small experience. Honestly, we don't have time to just sit down and talk about all the times that God worked in this sort of manner in my life. He is consistent and He is faithful. And as we begin to unpack the final sermon in our series in the book of Genesis, we find the exact same thing to be true, that God is consistent and that God is faithful. And so we've been moving through the book of Genesis. In the first four weeks, we hit on four events that happened in the book of Genesis. And the last four weeks are looking at four major people in the book of Genesis. So if you're familiar with the book, you probably can start to put some things together, right? We talked about Abraham. We talked about his son, Isaac. We talked about his son, Jacob. And Jacob had a son who is really well known in the Old Testament. And so today we're gonna to talk about Joseph. But here, let me give you a quick history of Joseph. And, and if you've been coming to our church, then you know that Joseph is not an easy one-time sermon. We actually spent three weeks covering Joseph in 2019, and we could have actually easily spent more than three weeks there. But here we go, I'll try to get through this quick. Last week, we talked about Jacob, and he had 11 sons. He, he did end up having another, uh, but the youngest of the current bunch of the 11 was Joseph. If you remember, Jacob had two wives, and Joseph was born to the favorite of those two, the one that he really loved. And so, because of this happening, Jacob clearly favored Joseph, and the rest of his sons hated Joseph for it. All of Joseph's brothers hated him because of that fact. So they end up selling Joseph into slavery. He, he ends up being taken to Egypt and was sold to become a servant in Potiphar's house. Potiphar was a high-ranking official in Egypt. So Joseph is now his servant. And, and from there, some good things happen to Joseph until Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph of raping her. But who do you believe, right? Do you believe royalty or the servant? I think we know the way, even if you haven't read the story, you know the way this is going to go. 
So Joseph was thrown in jail. He, he did begin to do well in jail too. And he had this incredible gift from God to be able to interpret these dreams. And so he was interpreting dreams in the jail through the power of God. Eventually, Pharaoh, the highest ranking official in Egypt, Pharaoh has a dream and nobody in his land can interpret the dream. Somebody remembers, oh, Joseph, Joseph was in prison and he interpreted our dreams. Maybe, maybe he can interpret the Pharaoh's dreams too. So Pharaoh ends up calling on Joseph. He pulls Joseph out of the dungeon to interpret his dream since no one else could. Joseph ends up interpreting the dream and he tells him, okay, so this is what's going to happen, Pharaoh. There are going to be seven years of, of great plenty of abundance in the land of Egypt, but it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And so here's what you can do. And Joseph kind of lays out a plan without even being asked. He just kind of lays out a plan and gives that to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh says, all right, fine. You're in charge. You're going to lead this whole thing out since you interpreted the dream and you have a plan. This just makes sense. So he puts Joseph in charge. Joseph ends up being second in command in all of Egypt. And during the famine, all of the surrounding nations were coming to Egypt because they were the only ones who still had food. Uh, uh, Specifically, they would come to Joseph. Because Joseph was the one who was in charge of this. Joseph was the one who was in charge of food distribution. So this is where the story gets interesting. It just so turns out that Joseph's older brothers, you remember the ones who sold him into slavery, right? They end up coming to Joseph for help, but they don't recognize that it's him. Because he's older now and he's dressed like an Egyptian and and Egyptians wear all these special garments and makeup and everything else. They don't recognize him. And he's even speaking Egyptian to him instead of their native Hebrew. He ends up meeting his younger brother and uh, that he hadn't met yet. Because remember, he was the 11th and there ends up being a 12th. Joseph meets this younger brother and calls for their brothers to bring the dad to him. Joseph misses his dad, Jacob. Eventually for this to happen... Joseph breaks down and weeps in front of his brothers. He wanted them to see him now and repent for how awful they were. But it ends up being Joseph who repents. It ends up being Joseph who breaks down and repents for the way that he's now treating them as second in command of Egypt. And so Pharaoh finds out about Joseph's family. And he sets them all up in Egypt to thrive. They're given the royal treatment. Uh, They set up in the land of Goshen and enjoy themselves. Jacob even gets to meet Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And all of this feels like this really happy ending to everything. That's your quick history. That's where we pick up now. So... We get all that, and then we pick up at the end of Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 33, which is the last verse, and then moving to Genesis 53, so chapter 50, verse 3. But starting in 49, 33, it says, When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, 
He drew his feet up into his bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. So Jacob just went through all of his 12 sons and blessed them. He even blessed Joseph's two sons. But Jacob was sick. So at the end of all this, he gave his son some instructions, and then he died. Joseph ends up going through the whole regular Egyptian process of having him embalmed and basically mummified, mummified right? And, and then they took him back to where Abraham uh, was buried so that he could be buried with his family. But, but let's rewind a little bit, okay? Let's go back. If you remember... If you were here last week, we talked about Jacob. Do you remember the relationship between Jacob and Esau? It, it wasn't a great one, right? And there was something very specific that Esau said that set Jacob off, that set him on the trajectory that would uh, define much of his life. Esau swore that as soon as their father was out of the way, he was coming for Jacob. His plan was to kill Jacob, but he knew that it would kill their father Isaac if he found out that one of his sons had killed the other. So as soon as Isaac is out of the way, Esau's coming for Jacob. So naturally, as soon as Isaac dies, Jacob is terrified. He thought for sure that Esau was, was going to come after him and kill him. And, and now... Let's look at what happens with Joseph's brothers after Jacob dies. So Genesis 50, again, this time in verse 15. So in Genesis 50, verse 15, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and, and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? Right? Um, here's some extra food for thought for you. Have you ever noticed that you always have this tendency to assume the worst in others? Have you ever wondered where that concept of worst, right? How you are defining worst. Have you ever wondered where that concept came from? Because it's probably come from within you. That's usually the way that works. Joseph's brothers always seem to be wrapped up in plots just like their father Jacob was. It was coming from within them. But here's what I want you to see. Just like we talked about last week, it's fear. It's fear all over again. Jacob dies and suddenly Joseph's brothers are fearful. See, Joseph is in a position that, you know, if he wanted to, he could bring the hammer down on his brothers. He could send the entire Egyptian army after them. Now that the old man Jacob is out of the way, he can finally exact revenge on them. But of course, that's just assuming 
that Joseph will respond the way that they think they would respond. They're assuming all of this. Their guilt has led them to fear. And and listen to me, church. Don't just sit on guilt. Sitting on guilt will breed fear. It will breed paranoia. It will breed plotting. It's not going to feed anything good into your life. If the brothers of Joseph would have just come to him and said, hey, you know, what we did was wrong. We we accept that. And we accept that there are consequences for our actions, but we want you to know that we are sincerely sorry for what we did to you. You know, reading this story now, I can almost guarantee that things would have been different because that would have given them an opportunity to see Joseph's heart. That would have allowed them to see that Joseph wasn't out for revenge like they thought that he was. When you just sit on your guilt, all you do is perpetuate a broken relationship. For all you know, you may already be forgiven. And if you're not, then you're not taking the necessary steps to find reconciliation. Sitting on guilt instead of acting on it will always lead to more damaged relationships and less trust issues. And that's exactly why Joseph's brothers turn this fear into a plot. And so let's, let's keep moving in our text in Genesis 50 verses 16 and 17. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers, the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. So the problem with this is that they're still trying to hide behind their father. They're still not willing to face the consequences for their actions. And if you go back to chapter 49, then you'll see that Jacob gave his sons their instructions. This this was never one of the instructions given. It wasn't there. So Joseph's brothers were just afraid. So they were trying to manipulate the situation to try and make sure that they didn't have to face the consequences of their actions. That's all it was. But the key here for Joseph, for you, for me, is to really hone in on the response of Joseph. Joseph absolutely nails it when he responds to this message from his brothers. So we keep going in in our text, this time in verses 19 through 20. And in verses 19 through 20, it says, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. (sighs) There's so much in this passage and just these two verses, but the first thing that Joseph says is, hey guys, I'm not God, so don't treat me like him. 
Joseph is saying that he doesn't have the ultimate final judgment call in their lives. He understands that whether or not God wants to exact judgment on their lives, that's up to him. That's not Joseph's call. It's his prerogative to ultimately show justice or mercy. God makes those calls, not us. But then Joseph says something that I think all of us need to hear. And I think we need to hear it often. Joseph tells them that what they intended for harm, God intended for good. It is so important for us to constantly be reminded that while the enemy is constantly working, while he is constantly trying to manipulate our lives, while he is constantly trying to tear apart the kingdom of God, he is ultimately not in control. We need to remind ourselves that God is the one who is on the throne and there is nothing that can be thrown at him that he can't use for good. Even if it's as small as the schedule of an employee at a grocery store. It's easy for us in a moment of discouragement, fear, anger, whatever it might be, to forget that God is ultimately in control. So do you trust him or not? Do you actually believe that he's good or not? To bring good out of evil, wrong, and chaos is simply his character. It's what we always see from God. It's what we always have seen. It's literally the first chapter of the Bible. The earth was unformed and chaotic, and instead of destroying it and remaking it, he shifts the chaos into perfection. He takes what was wrong and makes something good, beautiful, and perfect out of it. That's the same thing that he's doing in each of us. Each of us are born into a broken world as broken people. And when we step into relationship with Jesus, he begins forming and shaping us into his perfect image. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Your job is not to grow into the best version of yourself. Your job is to be shaped into being more like Jesus. So let's look at Jesus. Through this series, since we've got to individual people in the book of Genesis, we've said that Jesus is better. Jesus is a better Abraham. Jesus is a better Isaac. Jesus is a better Jacob. And you can probably guess at this point that Jesus is a better Joseph too. But I really think that this is the most exciting part. This is where it caps off the whole series so well. Joseph was a man who was accused by his peers. And then he was falsely accused and punished by the government. Does that sound familiar? I, I, I mean, that's the story of Jesus. People accused him. People didn't believe him. Even his own people didn't seem to understand him. They had a view of the Messiah and Jesus wasn't fulfilling that image that they felt he should be. And then the government. Goodness, the crucifixion of Jesus. They murdered him. They had illegal trials. They honestly didn't care what Jesus had to say. They, they just had a mob mentality. So they abused him and they ultimately ended up murdering him. But then Joseph tells his brothers back in Genesis 50 not to think of him like God because ultimately God took what they intended for harm and used it for good. Joseph specifically says that the good was the saving of many lives. Come on. I mean, if you don't see it yet, I, 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 don't, I don't know how. 
In Joseph's time, people were dying of famine. They were, they were starving to death. But Joseph had the food that they needed. And it was only because of the evil of his brothers that brought him to Egypt that he ended up where he could interpret a dream that would lead to him preparing the food that everyone needed. Then there's Jesus, the bread of life who, while he certainly never wanted to die, understood that through that, through his death on the cross, that he could be the bread of life, that he could be living water, and that it could be brought to all those who are starving. It could be brought to a dying world. What the enemy intended for evil in the crucifixion of an innocent man God was ultimately able to use for good. It was the crucifixion of Jesus, the brutal death on the cross that gives us any hope. It's the only reason that true life can be offered to us. See, we needed someone to face death and to defeat it. We needed someone to say that they wrestled with the clutches of death and won. We needed someone who could offer life, real life, lasting life, eternal life. We needed Jesus. In every way, we see that Jesus is a better Joseph. He's the one who left behind his family, but by his own choice. He's the one who descended into the clutches of death, but by his own choice. He's the one who rose back to be seated at the right hand of his father, but by his own choice and by his own power. He's the one who can offer us life. He's the one who can remove the fear that so many of us are holding on to. As we plot and scheme to try and make the most of this life at any cost, Jesus offers us full life, free of charge. Jesus always was, always is, and always will be better than anything else. And so listen, if you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, that's step one. You can't, you, you can't even fathom experiencing this fullness of life without a relationship with Jesus. And so if you're in a place today where you're, you're thinking, you know, I want to take that step. I want to step into a relationship with Jesus. Well, that's great news because I want to help you. And, and so I want to help lead you in a prayer. But this, this prayer has to be your heart. You have to pray it from your own heart. But Jesus is offering you this full life. He's offering you a relationship with himself. And it just comes down to turning away from your own life and accepting him as your Lord. So if that's you, I want to pray with you this morning. So let's pray. Jesus, I am sorry for trying to do life on my own. I'm sorry for sinning against you. And Jesus, I believe that you died on that cross for my sins. But I believe that you didn't stay dead. I believe that you rose from the grave defeating death. And so Jesus, I am committing my life today to, to making you Lord of my life to following you for the rest of my days, Jesus. I accept you into my heart. You are my Lord. And in Jesus' name, amen. And that's it. If you prayed that prayer, you have stepped into a relationship with Jesus. You have made the most exciting decision of your life. And so listen, if that was you who prayed that prayer, reach out to us in the comments wherever you're watching this. Uh, feel free to email us at First Baptist, uh, at firstbaptistporterville at gmail.com. We would love to pray with you, to work with you as you enter into this new journey with Jesus.